0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right, uh, we're going to continue with uh, part five. That's right, part five of uh, the series on the grand story. And we've got a lot of ground to cover. In fact, this morning I took out a whole big section and then I inserted a little bit of a different section because I wanted to also give you some hope along the way. And so um, it's, a, it's a pick and choose what exactly we take here. But I, th- I think the Spirit's got it all set up uh, for what we're going to do. Let's bow forward a word of prayer, and then, we'll, uh, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you uh, for this time uh, that we can enjoy together a, a, a the Lord's day. I'm, I'm reminded what John said centuries ago as he was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. And he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And we would be in the Spirit on the Lord's day today. That is our desire, to be in the Spirit, hearing what you're saying, just as John was listening careful, carefully to what the Spirit was saying on the Lord's day at his time on the Isle of Patmos. And so t- today we say to you, Lord, give us ears to hear hearts that can really hear today and in this in this la, in these last days and now lord as we look at this uh, grand story which all relates to what is happening around us we have to understand this uh, help us to understand the foundation so that we get the so that we get the understanding at the end about the end correct And uh, so we ask you for a great deal of wisdom and insight, understanding, and uh, we choose to engage with our hearts with you this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying, amen and amen. When Adam and Eve rebelled in Eden, sin, evil, and death spoilt God's good creation. Remember, he had said it was very good, and we said that also included moral good. However, in Genesis 3.15, God promised to redeem the world, uh, you know, in the Edenic covenant there with Adam and Eve, where he talked about the seed. A single seed, descendant, would arise from Eve's godly seed of descendants, a people, in other words, uh, to defeat the serpent, or Satan, and his seed, or descendants. Though the serpent would crush the male seed's heel, and we talked about that, The seed would crush the serpent's head. That's what we discovered. Kind of like David killing Goliath on behalf of the Israelites. As God had dwelt with Adam and Eve in Eden, so he promised to one day reintroduce that blessing through Shem, who was one of Noah's three sons in Genesis chapter 9. It says he, speaking of Noah, said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let him, that's God, dwell in the tents of Shem. He talks also about Japheth and, and, um, and Ham. But here specifically, the promise of blessing and dwelling with man, was going to come through Shem. So it's narrowing down from Adam and Eve, very general. It's narrowing down through Noah, through Shem. And Shem's genealogy, you find the genealogies of his sons in chapter 10 and 11. You get to chapter 11, um, his genealogy ends with Terah fathering Abraham and, um, and, uh, and Nahor, Nahor and Haran god called abram or abraham who is living in ur of the Chaldees, today's iraq this is what it says here is the abrahamic covenant though it was expanded on or repeated four more times in chapter 13 15 17 and 22 it was it was repeated and or expanded on okay but here it is this is the most famous passage for when when people talk about the abrahamic covenant leave your country your people and your father's household and go to the land i will show you i will make you into a great nation and i will bless you i will make your name great and you will be a blessing notice there's a bunch of promises within one covenant i will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you i will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Five times God promised to bless Abraham, uh, reminding us of the blessing promised to Shem. Remember, we had just read that. The promise begun in the Edenic Covenant, Genesis 3.15, and continued through Shem, Genesis chapter 9, is now, or now resumes with Abraham in chapter 12. There's eight promises contained in it, depending on how you divide it up, but eight promises contained in this one big covenant to bless Abraham, to make Abraham's name great, to bless the nations through him, to be God to Abraham and his descendants, to protect Abraham, and uh, you know, cursing those who curse uh, him, and, the, and so on and so forth. We, we, don't have, we don't have time to go into those. We're gonna take three chief ones now and expand on them a little, and then the eighth one, the last of the three, will expand on the most, okay, uh, in, in the message. So, first was the, first of those three, promise number six was that he'd make a, a great nation. And I don't necessarily have them in order in which you see them here in Genesis 12, or 13, 15, 17, and 22. Somewhat in order, but not completely. Recall that Eve was promised a collective seed and a, and, uh, uh, a, and a single male seed. Do you remember that? We talked about there'd be a collective seed, singular, out of which a, uh, a single seed would come out of that group of people, a people group, if you like. Remember that? Okay, very good. Both were re-promised to Abraham. We're going to see in the message today. First, let's look at the collective seed. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 I will make you into a great nation, a people seed. That's why it's a singular seed. It's a people, but it's a people uh, or nation of many people. Of course, or persons, the, the meaning of great here includes the idea of quantity, obviously. Uh, He took him outside, look up at the heavens and count the stars. God said, if indeed you can count them. He said this to Abraham. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. You're going to have many in this people group. But great nation doesn't just refer to quantity, it also refers to what? Yeah, exactly, quality. Quality. Uh, The quality of the descendants. What makes a nation great in God's sight is righteousness. The quality of the people. Not just many. You can have a big nation with many people who are wicked. That doesn't make it a great nation. So he says, Proverbs 14, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace for any people, to any people. Thus, God promised and he predicted that Abram's descendants would one day become numerous, many, and they would be holy, both of them. It's very important that we understand it's both. And we know God really had this in mind when he constituted them uh, into a nation at Mount Sinai, which we'll look at next week when we talk about the Mosaic Covenant. After they escaped Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai, remember? And he read them the law, and he gave them a constitution to be a nation. And here's what he said to them at that time, and we'll see that next week. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a what? Or didn't I put it in here? Yeah, and a, and a holy nation. Very good. There we go. Though this has never happened in history, Jesus said it, it will. Never have they been a great nation in the sense of both of them. There's been times that they've got close very briefly. But for the most part, this has not characterized uh, been characteristic of them. Matthew twenty three thirty nine says, "'For I tell you, you will not see me again "'until you say, blessed is he.'" Excuse me. <clears throat> because Jesus said, it will happen. And he said this just before he died. He said, I'm, you're not going to see me again until you say, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.'" They rejected him. He said, the time's coming when you're going to do the opposite. You're going to receive me. There's a time coming when they're going to be righteous, Jesus said. Though Jesus knew that they would reject uh, 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 him in a few days, he predicted they would welcome him. And minutes later in the end time sermon, which we're going to look at a little bit later in in the sermon today, Jesus quoted Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 to to 12. And this is what he said. He he said that they would look on the one that crucified and mourn bitterly. Here it is, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes, the Greek word is uh, phile. Now, it's not ethnos. Ethnos always is for Gentiles. He's talking here about the Jewish tribes. He's talking about the 12. He's not talking about just the tribes of the world, as many people seem to think. Uh, uh, the, of, the, of the earth, or gay, they will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power. He's talking about Israel, very specifically. And the reason we know that is because he's quoting Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 to 11. That's what he's, that's what he's quoting. And when he quotes it, if you go back to that passage, you'll find he's talking about Israel. He's not talking about the whole world there. That's another topic. That doesn't mean the world won't see him or anything, but that's what's going on here. Though Israel has never been a holy, righteous people, the prophets predicted it will happen in a glorious end times or eschatological future. In the end, it's going to happen. Uh, They're not a righteous uh, country today by any stretch of imagination. But look what Isaiah said. This is just before they went into exile. He says in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 in Babylonian exile. The northern kingdom was already gone for 150 years when he said this. He says, then will all your people be what? That's just never happened. Not only that, but he says it's going to. And here's what Jeremiah had to say about uh, them in that day. This is taken, by the way, out of the New Covenant, and we're gonna be talking about that in a little bit. Not today, but (laughs) after Christmas. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will, what? All "All know me. There's a time coming when Israel, everyone in Israel won't, it says, they won't have to be taught because they will all know the Lord. Isn't that something? Yeah, a righteous nation. It's a promise made to Abraham. Never forget it. And it has never been, it has never been fulfilled. It has been partially fulfilled, but never fulfilled. Okay. The second thing is, he promised land for this nation. That's promise number seven, the way we've got it listed. When Abraham arrived in the land, God promised to give it to him. Genesis 13 says, all the land that you see, I will give it to you and to your offspring forever. God promised Abraham the land forever. There are many, many repetitions of the promise of land forever in the Old Testament. I kid you not. Just look under, just, just look it up. For, uh, go to, um, uh, you know, uh, you can look it up. Uh, do a search and you can do uh, forever or everlasting. And you will be shocked at how many times it comes up. I didn't count it all. God didn't give them just any piece of land. He gave them a strategic piece of land, right where three continents um, converge. Asia, Europe, and Africa all converge right there. And if she was going to bless the nations, she would need to be situated right in the middle of the nations, and that's exactly what God said. Ezekiel chapter 5 says, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the what? Center. Center of the? nations with countries all around her god wanted her in a place where she could occupy center stage so uh, so uh, where all the nations would notice her okay so he sticks her right there trade moved back and forth through this region between the three continents and uh, marching armies <laughs> you know you always had the assyrians and the babylonians coming from the north well and the greeks too Uh, from the northwest and from the northeast, and they would come through this little thing towards Egypt out of of North Africa, and the same thing going back the other way. And they were right in the middle of that. And uh, so though they lived in the land, Israel never fully occupied it because God defined the boundaries in Genesis chapter 15. But they never actually occupied all of it as defined in Genesis 15, not even during the golden eras of King David and King Solomon. Now, that that was the most they occupied. But even then, they, they didn't fully occupy everything. Further, Abram never owned the land personally, though it was promised not only to his descendants, but also to him, See what it says? To you and to your offspring forever. Here's what the Hebrews writer said about it. These all died in faith. And when you look at verse 13, if you go back to Hebrews 11 and you look at the verses right before that, you know who he's talking about? Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Which included the land. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, all that Abram owned in the promised land was a, cave, a field in a cave to bur- bury his wife, Sarah. That's it. That means that Abram has to receive the land. When? In the resurrection. Because God always keeps His promises. And Abram's gone, he still hasn't received it. That's still coming in the future. That's part of the reason we know, it's just one of many reasons we know that something is coming in the future like that. Thus, this promise of land still waits a future fulfillment. The righteous nation, a great nation, that's still future. The land, that's still future. because they, they, don't, they don't have everything yet. And it's certainly not a righteous nation. And Abraham isn't received. Okay, promise number eight. This is where we park a little bit more. The unique, or the central promise of the entire covenant at the center, at the core of it, is a, the promise of a unique seed. That's promise number eight. And it's repeated from Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 22, 17, 18, this is one of the five expansions of the Abrahamic covenant, one of the five. Chapter 22 is the last of those. "'I will greatly bless you,' God said to him. "'I will greatly multiply your seed.'" Zera. there it is again, just like Genesis 3:15, "'As the stars of the heaven, the sand on the seashore, "'and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We could do an entire message just on that (laughs) that passage, but we're just going to take a couple of pieces out of it. Recall that in Genesis 3.15, we saw that the singular noun seed could be used either in a collective sense, a people. So a seed was a people, right? And then a single seed could come out of that people. All right, you're tracking really well with me. I've been amazed. <laughs> this is a very technical, well, this is a fairly technical series, and, and so many of you uh, have been telling me you're tracking with it, and I'm, I'm really proud of you. That, uh, it's because you're leaning in. I know that, and the Holy Spirit's helping us, right? <laughs> he's helping me, and he's helping you. And uh, that's why it's working. Okay, three times here it says seed. Three times. Now we've got to figure out what it is, right? So here we go. The first one, the first one says, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. Uh-oh, that's easy, right? Seed, there can only be what? The collective sense a people group with many people in it, right? Does that make sense? Because he says, like the stars of heaven. Okay, so we know that one. Knock that one away. The next one, your seed shall possess the land. And and uh, see, you see that coming up on there? That's good. They're tracking with me really well. Okay, the second one says, the seed shall possess the gate of the enemies. Now, uh, the pronoun for enemies is third person, masculine, singular. I identical to Genesis 3.15 issue. Do you remember? It talked about plural, like the collective seed of a people group, and then all at once it turned to a singular masculine, meaning his instead of their. If if they had been referring to the collective people, it would have said their. But instead it says what? What's the pronoun? His. And now he switches to the singular seed coming out of this collective seed, which is the people group. So coming out of a people group, which we later, earlier saw already, is a nation, right? And the nation is who? Israel. Very good. And so uh, the NASB has incorrectly translated it there. And the ESV and others have translated correctly as his. God switched from the plural to the singular, and that's exactly what happened in Genesis 3.15, where he says, I'll put enmity between uh, you and the woman and between her seed and and, uh, your seed. And then he says, he will, see, it goes from many, he will, bruise your heel, and you will crush his head. Same thing as this. It comes up again. And what we should be doing is sitting up right at this point and going, oh my goodness, this is that. Or (laughs) from your point of view, this is that. Right? This is the same. It's connected. He's repeating it. And that's really important. Okay, and then verse 18 God just said that this unique single seed would bless the nations. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, we'll see how this seed would bless the nations. Well, that comes to point two there. The Old Testament's uh, saints, OT, were saved by faith in the seed, just like New Testament saints. People think that in the Old Testament, they got saved by works. In the New Testament, they got saved by grace through faith not true, only half true. They got saved the exact same way we get saved, identical. This isn't a new idea, salvation. Paul didn't superimpose this. This is an Old Testament concept that goes all the way back here. Okay, 2,000 years after Abraham, Paul commenting on Genesis twenty-two, sixteen, eighteen, 18, which we just looked at, right? Identified, he quotes it twice in Galatians 3, verse 8, and Galatians 3, verse 16, different parts of it. He quotes it and comments on it. Okay, so here's his comments. I've just put those two verses together. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his what? Seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds. Notice that? He picks up on this. Meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person. That's that 17b, verse 17b. Um, uh, one person who is who? Who is Christ. Here's the difference. Paul is saying his theology is identical to Moses' uh, uh, theology, except for one thing. Well, he identifies who that seed is. Moses didn't know the name (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) He didn't know that. He just knew that seed. Uh, But uh, Paul identifies it. Anyway, Uh, where am I? Here we go. Oh, yeah, Scripture... The Old Testament, that's what it's talking about here. He's not talking about the New Testament when he says Scripture. He says he, he says, he foresaw that God, the Scripture, the Old Testament, Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by what? And announced the, the what? In advance to who? Abraham. Whoa! in advance to Abram, all nations will be blessed through you. There's the quote from Genesis 22. There it is. Paul said that faith in the seed would justify him. That was the essence of the blessing to the nations. And Paul called that the gospel. Further, he said that this gospel was first preached to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, and, um, and l- let's, see if it's, let's see if there's evidence for that. Genesis 15, God had just taken Abram out. He did this a couple times with Abram. He didn't just do it in Genesis 22, take him out and show him the star. The sky. He did in Genesis 15 as well. He took him out and said, look at the stars, if you can count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And he says that in Genesis 15, 4-5. So shall your offspring B, notice Abraham's simple and profound response of faith in verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him as? There it is. And the word for that is tzedakah. That's the Hebrew word for it. Uh, Not the Greek word for it, but that's the Hebrew word for it. And I put it there for a reason, not to to, uh, be smart, but there's a reason. And we're coming to it right away. Just hang on. Abraham's trust was in the Lord, the one who had promised. Abraham believed in God's entire redemptive promise plan, central to which was the coming promised single seed, who would come out of the collective seed, which were a people, a nation, not just any nation, because many nations came from Abraham, actually, He had three wives, right? He had had Sarah and, well, or concubines, whatever you want to call, and Hagar, and then he had Keturah after Sarah died, right? And, And Keturah had six sons, and Hagar had one, and Sarah had one in her old age. And he wanted to make sure that we didn't think it was just from his descendants I had actually cut this out this morning because I didn't think we had enough time. I still don't know, but I can't resist. Uh, <laughs> he didn't want us to think it was because many nations came out of all his sons and his grandsons. Many. And yet he says to Abraham, You're gonna have a nation. Well, which one? A specific one. And he and he tells us, he goes on to describe. In, um, in Genesis, in two different places, that it's going to be through Isaac, not Ishmael. Remember? And then in chapter 35, he says, not Esau, but Jacob. Why is that so important? So that we wouldn't be confused about which was the right claim. Because you see, Islam comes from Abraham too. But it comes from Ishmael, not Isaac. Do you see that? It couldn't just be anybody. It couldn't just be any nation. couldn't just be any descendant. It had to come out of a specific people group. And that's why he says a seed, a people, not just many out of all his descendants. He had tons of descendants. Had to come out of a single one. Okay. Did that make sense? I don't know. It made sense to me anyway. Okay, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That has a legal aspect to it. It was a judge's term whereby he declared a person innocent of all his charges against him. In other words, sadaka is expressed variously like this in Exodus 23, 7, same word. And it says, I will acquit the wicked. That's the same word behind it. That's what it means. And you are innocent. 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 9. Sadaka. Same exact, same exact word. Doesn't this sound like we're reading Paul? The Apostle Paul? Yeah. Do you know what? People sometimes, uh, uh, listen, this is what skeptics do. They charge the New Testament writers with reading their theology back into the Old Testament. And what we find out is, no, no, they got their theology out of the Old Testament. True? That's why you can't knock out the Old Testament, 75% of the Scriptures. And that's what they're trying to do today. Because if you can pull the Old Testament out, a lot is going to go by the wayside. You can twist a lot of things. Well, we don't have time to get into that uh, today, but maybe another time. So anyway, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to righteousness. And we saw exactly that in Genesis chapter 22 or chapter 15. Jesus said that Abraham looked ahead to the day of redemption. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And we look behind. He looked ahead, we, the, the Old Testament saints looked ahead to the seed who would give us redemption. We look behind to the past. Is that true? That's what Jesus said. All right, the historicity, yeah, just very quick. I think I can do this. We're gonna try to pull this off. The internal evidence, there's internal evidence here that Abraham is a historical figure. Did you know that for many decades, many liberals and skeptics were saying, Abraham is just a mythological figure too? Just like what we talked about last week. No kidding, Abraham, yup. That's what they said, but there's lots of internal evidence here. The New Testament writers and Jesus believed in the historicity of them. Paul talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Peter, and Hebrews. They all talked about him. They all believed in him. That's the internal evidence, okay? I won't go further on that. We talked about it last week. Did you know there's some external evidence for this too? There is. Uh, Yet for many decades, many so-called biblical scholars notice I called them so-called, said that Moses couldn't have written Genesis to Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, or the Torah, or the Pentateuch, because they couldn't write at that time. They said it's not possible that he could have written those five because writing systems weren't even in place at that time. That's what many books said. Moses now lived around 1400 BC. Listen to me very carefully. 1400 BC, roughly. Okay, Abraham lived roughly 2100 BC. Okay, so even earlier than Moses. So Moses writes about Abraham, right? And gets some records from him stuff. Okay. Guess what? 1964. Two archaeologists. They're digging in northern Syria and they come across this find, this, it's Telmarcuk or something like that, but that's where they're doing the archeological dig. And they discovered the city of Ebla. In the city of Ebla, they discovered 17,000 clay tablets with records on it, all written out. And I included uh, 200, uh, just in one section, 260 geographical locations, uh, many of them never, uh, uh, that only the Bible spoke about, and they hadn't found it in extra-biblical literature. So they said, that, therefore, it's phony baloney. Uh, you know, this is just mythological story. It's a good story, but it's not true. It included names like Joppa and Sodom, Gomorrah, Damascus, all these kinds of things. That's one of the things they found. Seventeen thousand writings on on fish and you know fish and plants and animals and, and uh, receipts for trade and trading routes and all kinds of stuff like that. That's what they found, and uh, that's and then they dated it. Guess what they dated it to. Remember, I said 1400 B.C., roughly. For Moses, 2100 B.C., Abraham. Guess what they dated this? 2300 years before Christ, B.C. Which is before Abraham. Big writing systems, all these geographical locations in there, and suddenly all their their skeptical charges that the Bible wasn't true fell apart. So guess what they did? Because the story of Abraham starts in chapter 12 and goes on till you know, 22 and so on, and then Isaac and Jacob and so on. So guess what they do, did? They simply backed it up <laughs> and said, Genesis 1 to 11. And that's why last week I was talking about Genesis 1 to 11. Do you understand? That's how they do it. And then they get proved wrong, and they just, they, they just move the goalposts. And that's how they do it, and so that's one way to play soccer. So, while, which is why the liberal, and that's why they did. It. Okay, let's move on. Um, the covenant is unconditional. Now, this covenant with the eight promises, unconditional. There was a not only was it a promise, there was a ceremony. Chapter 15, verse 9 and following. It says, bring me a heifer, God said to Abram, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, ranged the halves opposite each other with a path in between, and as the sun was setting, Abram fell into deep sleep. Because God had put Abram to sleep, God passed through the two rows of dead carcasses alone. And we see that in, the, in verse 17 and to 21. Then the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch, uh, which is the presence of God, appeared and passed between the pieces. Now here's an explanation of that ceremony, very, very briefly. In ancient times, covenants... Um, Uh, You know when they would make covenants several animals would be killed cut in half the halves laid out and a path in between and then the Two parties would walk between uh, Walk the path between the slaughtered animals as if to say this listen carefully now May what happened to these animals? happen to me if I do not keep the covenant I made with you That's what they would both say okay Now, when God passed through the carcasses alone, and by the way, if you, uh, I'm I'm not just making this up, you can even see this in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18. You can go read it yourself. I just didn't, we don't have time to look at it. When God passed through the carcasses alone, he was in effect saying, may I become like these dead animals if I do not keep this covenant. That's a strong statement, isn't it? That's what God was saying. And Abraham didn't get to go through it, so he never made the covenant. God knew that Abraham and his descendants would sin and break the covenant, so he decided to fulfill the entire covenant by himself. Is that amazing? Because that means it doesn't depend on you and me to keep it. All the promises that he's made Don't depend on you and me to keep it, because if it did, we're out of luck today. I don't know what we're doing here, because we've all messed up already. We've all broken the covenant. Okay, second, the conditional statement. Some people say, yeah, but there's conditional statements, like in Genesis 22, 16, 18, because you have, have not withheld your only Son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. So they say, see, it's conditional. Oh, wait a minute. It sounds conditional, so how do we uh, reconcile, on the one hand, it is unconditional, and on the other hand, it looks like it is conditional. How do we reconcile that? Well, we need to see that the condition wasn't attached to the promise, but only to the participants of the covenant. Listen very carefully. Follow me, track with me, think, put your thinking cap on. The condition doesn't have anything to do with the promise. It has everything to do with the participants. Here's what I mean by that. If the condition of faith in God was not met by Abraham as evidenced by his obedience, then he would become a mere transmitter of those promises, but he himself wouldn't get to participate or benefit from them. Does that make sense? OK, follow me. I'm going to give you an example to help you get it. Because it's all over the New Te- uh, Old Testament. You'll see this. In fact, you even see the New Testament. We just don't have time to get to them all. But I'll give you one example. Did God say, promise the Israelites through Moses that he was going to take Israel into the Promised Land? Yes or no? Yes, very good. No trick questions here this morning, OK? I'll save that for the next service. No. Uh, uh, He he said that. Now, I want to ask you a second question. Did he keep his promise? Yes or no? Did they get into Israel? I mean, (laughs) did Israel get into the promised land? And the answer is, yes. Oh, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did everybody who came out of Egypt end up in the promised land? Yes or no? Ah, do you see what I'm saying? No, at Kadesh Barnea, we could go through several examples here of the ones that didn't make it, but here's one, Kadesh Barnea. Remember, they got to Kadesh Barnea, and 10 out of 12 spies were supposed, well, the 12 spies went in to spy the land. They were supposed to go in, bring back a good report, and then they were supposed to go. Ten of them rebelled against God and led the people in a rebellion, and they wouldn't follow with Joshua and Caleb. Remember that? And the result was that God said, as a result, this entire generation will die in the wilderness, which is why it took 40 years. Remember that? Except for who? Yeah, very good. You know your stories. You know this. You you know it. This is good. Except for Joshua and Caleb. But the rest didn't go. Well, what happened? They became the transmitters of it. They themselves didn't participate personally in the promise. But they had children, did they? And those children ended up in the promised land, many of them, mo- most of them. Is that right? Now do you get, you get the, do you get it? That's what he's talking about. The condition depends on who gets to be part of that promise. But, uh, but, they, uh, but God kept his promise and brought him into the uh, promised Land. Okay, that uh, that takes me to one that I added here this morning, uh, because I wanted to give I, I wanted to leave you with some hope today and some encouragement. Okay, the seed will soon crush the serpent, who is Satan, in Genesis twenty two eighteen. Today we we talked about how uh, this, this single seed will rise from a people group, and to bless the nations. Right. That's salvation. And we found it's right in the Old Testament, right? Okay. The seed made that possible at his first advent. That's Jesus, right? He's the seed. Uh, When he died for our sins, so that whoever uh, believes in him should not perish. Though he disarmed Satan at the cross, according to Colossians 2.15, and he did. He triumphed over him at the cross. He disarmed the powers at the cross. Is that true? Yeah. We don't have time to go into it. However, he didn't crush him the way Genesis 3.15 said. And I can prove it. Paul said that. Uh, Romans 16.20, speaking long after Jesus was gone up into heaven, he said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That was after the cross. He was disarmed so that people could be saved. He would not be in Satan's grip anymore. That's us, you and me, right? True? But he hasn't crushed him yet. Uh, Recall that in Genesis 3, 15, God said that there would be great enmity or hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. Remember that? And it's been going on ever since in human history. His, that's what history is about. Jesus said that in the end it would intensify to a degree not seen since the beginning of the world. He said, "For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be." And we can see the start of that in this in, in, in our day. Uh, take the Hindu state of India. One sixth of the people group. One of our pastors from India this week, uh, reported that a couple weeks ago, over 2,100 families in one state alone had been forced to convert back from Christianity back to Hinduism. Then he reported in his own state, where his father oversees a large network of pastors and stuff, mobs had come in on Sunday morning and stopped worship. When they went to the police, they got no help. The reason is because Prime Minister Modi is a Hindu, and his party is a Hindu party. And he said, he has predicted, this is what what he said, he has stated that his goal is by 2022 to turn India into a completely Hindu state and not allow any other religion. That's what he has stated. It sounds chilling, doesn't it? over a billion people living in India, one-sixth of the world population. And um, then I read last, yesterday, November 27th, an article, uh, NBC News, uh, on, on the concern that the Americans now have, the president has, because he's trying to work together with India to counter the power of China but now they don't know what to do because there's so much religious persecution now starting to rise up in India. And it's a big article on, you can look it up yourself. And now they don't know what to do. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. What do they do? Okay, the Hindu state. Then there's the Islamic states. Won't say much about that. The whole Middle East there completely out, and and they outlaw the Christian church. Many are persecuted, imprisoned, Many have been martyred, so on and so forth. Then you have the communist states. You got China. It's it's been rising in power. They already took Hong Kong, and suppressed all freedom of press, uh, uh, and they're suppressing all the freedoms. Is that true? Hong Kong. You can read it. You can read this. This this isn't uh, underground material. They've already stated several times this year alone, Xi Jinping, president, that they intend to bring Taiwan back into, with China. Taiwan is a democracy. And you know what? There's nobody going to stop them. It's not going to happen. And you know what I, what I just read yesterday, too? They now have purchased, they either have full or partial ownership of 100 ports in 63 countries. They're buying everything up because all their factories are state-owned. Uh, and they suppress the minority, the religious minorities, and Christians. Um, it's it's brut- It's a brutal r- regime. Um, Xi Jinping. That doesn't even count. Little North Korea and what's happening over there. So you got the Hindu states. You got that's one sixth of the world too. Plus all their, their influence. They're going. They've they're fomenting unrest in Solomon Islands, so a thousand miles northeast of Australia, and so on and so forth. Then there's the secularist states. That's the whole West. There's a Finnish pastor. I I, I received this from one of our pastors. (laughs) Uh, This report came out on November the 23rd, this last week. Finnish pastor and an MP from the Finnish parliament are both going to trial on January 24th, 2022. That's coming up, just in a couple of months. You know what's for? Hate speech. And the, the reason is because this pastor, who is from the state church, the Lutheran state church, he was expelled from them because of his views on marriage and human sexuality. In, in 2004, he wrote a booklet, a 24-page booklet. That was way back in 2004, stating, uh, uh, teaching his people on the view of marriage, and sexuality. And they now classify that as hate speech. And all European countries and Canada have that same hate speech law in their, on their books right now. Secular states. It's rising up all over the place. But Jesus said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus promised Uh, He predicted this. He promised that for the sake of believers on earth, he said it's going to get bad. But he said it's going to be of limited duration. It's going to be limited duration. He said, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be, what? Help me. Cut short. And immediately, and and then uh, verses later, in that same uh, speech or sermon that he preached, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days will appear the sign of the in heaven, the sign of the, remember this, the what? Son of man. Jesus referred to himself as the son of man more than anything else, almost exclusively. We always think of him as Messiah, son of God and all that. He never referred to himself like that. He referred to himself always as son of man. And I'll tell you why. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's actually quoting something. And all his listeners knew what he was quoting because they had the same scriptures. It was the Old Testament. And he, he would, he would, uh, he was Uh, speaking to them in Aramaic, and he would use the the phrase son of man. That phrase, son of man, is only found in one place in the entire Old Testament. Do you know where? Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Let's see what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came... uh, to the ancient days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is a what? Everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Every time he would say son of, his, son of man, the listeners would immediately, sh- their mind would go Daniel 7. He's saying he is that person. That's that's why he called himself Son of Man all the time. Um, But do you know what the Son of Man and his kingdom do before they rule over the world? They crush the kingdoms of the world. Daniel chapter 2. We'll see it. Remember, I don't have time. Uh, <laughs> Remember the statute, right? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron and clay, right? And it says in Daniel chapter 2 that a stone is cut out of the rock, not by human hands, meaning it's not by God, and this stone comes and crushes that statute. The statute referred to the gold was the Babylonian empire, Medo-Persian empire, the Greek empire, and then, depending on what you believe, either the Roman or the Ottoman Islamic and revived empires, and all the empires. That stone comes and crushes it. That's what it says, Daniel chapter two. I don't have time to read it right now. And he says in verse 45, this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, clay, silver, gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. And he says in verse 45, it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. That's our hope. There's some difficult days coming, and we don't do ourselves a favor by sticking our head in the sand and pretending that they aren't. They are. And that means we gotta prepare. And we gotta prepare the younger generations. And we gotta disciple them. But the hope is, it's for a limited duration. And then Jesus is gonna come and crush Those nations. That's how he's coming back to take us back. That's what he said, and that's what Daniel said. All right. How do we know that God will fulfill his promises? His integrity is at stake. And because he has given us down payments of his promises, God has already been blessing the nations with salvation. If he was willing to die on the cross, send his son to die on a cross, don't you think he's more than willing to crush? Satan and his evil empires? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's going to come and do that. And God takes his covenants really, really seriously. That's why he went through... I could take you <laughs> on a little trek on that, but, but that's, that's why he went through those carcasses alone, and made the covenant by himself and said, may I be like one of those if I don't keep my promises. Brothers and sisters, it is getting dark. What you've been seeing, you've been seeing correctly. But it's for a limited duration, and he tells us to stand strong. And then he says, I'm coming back, And I'm going to crush Satan and his evil empires once and for all and set up a kingdom that will never, ever be destroyed. Amen and amen. And I'm looking forward to that. Are you? Thank you, Jesus. Can you say, thank you, Jesus? Jesus. Can you say, Maranatha? Maranatha. That means, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. Amen.